Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiya. Welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens. This is the podcast which, if you've started listening by accident, finds out the five things that its guests would like to preserve in a time capsule. Four things they love and one they loathe and would like to be rid of. My guest revealing his five choices in this episode is the stand-up comedian Stephen K. Amos, who is a regular panellist on such shows as Mock the Week, QI and Have I Got News for You, and a performer and host of the BBC show Live at the Apollo. Stephen began his career as a compere at the Big Fish Comedy Clubs in South London and has been nominated for the Chortle Best Compare Award three times. He's performed at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe every year since 2003, right up to 2020, when, sadly, the Fringe was cancelled. Stephen's stand-up career has seen him perform at comedy clubs and theatres all over the world to great acclaim. An impressive life, then. So, let's find out what five things from it Stephen would like to put in his time capsule. I hope you have fun listening. Well, I've got to say, Mike, I've thought about uh, what you were going to ask me and uh, what I was going to, how I was going to respond. And I thought it was going to be really funny and cheeky and say, you know what, I'd probably go for like uh, a USB stick because that's really small and that's got everything on there. Like I could <laughs> have my life, my photographs, my gigs, uh, my favourite, everything. And that will be the end of this podcast. I think you're going to cheat and that's it. And say thank you very much, Stephen K. Amos. Goodbye. <laughs> but I'm surprised nobody else has said that. You know, wow, what an ingenious idea because I'm really not computer savvy or you know uh it's only a few weeks ago i sort of box of photographs that my brother had given to me uh that he collected since the 80s yeah. and i was like wow i wish i'd collected things like this mm. but the answer to my prayers would be a simple usb stick with everything on it with everything on it that falls into my head yeah but then i thought I thought, you know what, that's not fair on Mike. Let me give him some some stuff that really either means something to me 
or or that I could actually fit into a time capsule. Yeah. And the first thing I thought of was um, a Polaroid photograph that I've got of myself and my twin sister at our 30th birthday party. Oh, how lovely. Yeah. Uh, is she the same age as you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you know that is such a, a funny comment uh, because that's the question I've been asked all my life um, <laughs> uh, about having a twin sister. The other question I get asked is, are you identical? <laughs> and I have to say, I'm a boy, she's a girl. Uh, <laughs> how hideous would she have to be if we were identical? Uh, <laughs> But yeah, and it's also a Polaroid, yeah. and uh, it reminds me of the time that cameras on our phones weren't a, a thing, nobody had mobile phones, no. so taking a photograph was really, literally, the only way of capturing a moment. Yes, and that's the first sort of instant photograph as well, isn't it, a Polaroid? I loved it, and I, I, it was like magic, it was like, this is the future, and it was also bloody expensive. Yes. I remember you used to get, um, I think, a cartridge that held either 10 or 20 processing films, or whatever they were, and then you'd slip them in the Polaroid, you'd take the snap, and you'd have to wait about 45 minutes <laughs> <laughs> before you could take another photograph because the uh, film came out of the bottom, you had to hold it in your hand and then waft it through the air yes. so it dried <laughs> and then presented some sort of image, one that invariably didn't look like anything of the image you were trying to capture. <laughs> no, like something out of the 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> and I chose that because when I look back on my life, in terms of having uh, a sibling, having a twin was probably the best thing ever. You know, it was properly like uh, uh, we had our own language, our own communication strategy. We were just the best of friends. And having that documented through photographs, mm. photographic evidence was amazing. Yeah. What's her name? Do you mind if I ask? Stella. 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 And that's a very interesting question as well, uh, Mike, I should tell you, because, get this, uh, myself and my twin, we were born in what is now a leafy suburb of central London, Chelsea. Mm. And I've got to say, when we were born there, not so much. <laughs> uh, a, a hive of crime and dodge activities. Uh, and basically, we were born in a hospital in Chelsea called St. Stephen's Hospital. Right. So, yes, you can imagine how my parents had to struggle to come up with my name. <laughs> yes. So for many, many years, before my sister changed her name, her name used to be Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good nickname. It's a good nickname, and it was so. It was. It was such a different era back then because you know, uh, back then women were just like uh, taken to the hospital to deliver their child into labour, then go home. And yeah. uh, it was so bad that my mother didn't even know that she was expecting twins. Yeah. Really? Can you imagine that? Yeah. Apparently, she was in the hospital. She gave birth to my sister, and then was getting dressed, about to leave the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and the midwife was like, Mrs. Amos, wait, wait, there's another child. And apparently, legend has it, my mum turns to my dad and goes, Ah, you bastard! How <laughs> many more are in me? So much more work for me to do. Oh, bringing up twins. So where was this party that you had together? Again, wonderful question, because I hadn't actually seen this photograph for quite a long time. This party took place in the first flat 
I ever bought with my own hard-earned cash, mm. which was in the mean streets of Tooting. Yes. And if the photograph itself tells a story because in the background you can see the very, very poor appliances I was forced to use from, <laughs> from my um, dodgy-looking cooker to uh, the uh, toaster and the kettle uh, that didn't match. Yeah. Uh, but it was all the things you get from your friends and your family that kind of helped you into your first place of living, I suppose. Well, your first place that you bought yourself. It was yeah. the first place I could call home. And also, I think one of the most interesting things is we had never, ever had a birthday party as children from our parents. Really? Ever. Not, not at all. So to be able to have a birthday party in my house... Mm. The most proud thing I owned, it meant that I was an adult. I was living in the real world. And to have my sister and I, the photographs in the kitchen, and we're both holding the, uh, the knife, cutting the cake at the same time. Lovely. And we're 30 at this point. Yeah, well, you know, it's not easy to get onto that property ladder. What you seem to have done is you seem to have um, lived in property in areas when they were run down, and then you've brought your own charisma and charm to the area. The property values have rocketed, and then you've moved on. <laughs> so you've gone Chelsea, and then Tootie. <laughs> what we need to know is where are you now, because that's obviously the place to buy. <laughs> Do you know what? Actually, Mike, that's a very good point because I think it comes from my parents mm. because my parents arrived in the UK in the kind of very early 60s. Right. And their whole ethos was that they were going to make it. Yeah. And by make it, it meant them starting at the bottom. So renting a room, buying a flat, buying a rundown house, doing it up. So we constantly moved. I went to about three different primary schools. Mm. My older brother, five different primary schools, wow. because my parents kept moving around South London, buying a place that was run down, doing it up, bit of profit, moving on to the next place. Yeah. My parents generally thought themselves as property developers. <laughs> we actually thought we were in the witness protection program. <laughs> it was, that's probably why I never ever had birthday parties because we could never spend enough time in one place to kind of meet friends and and kind of grow those relationships. Yes, the very act of coming over to this country in the early sixties. That in itself shows the determination, doesn't it? And I've got to say, Mike, I, I, as a young kid with my siblings, really kind of questioned the motives of my parents for doing that and didn't really appreciate them in that moment because, you know, when you, you see them struggling, my dad probably had three or four jobs when I was growing up, uh, like a bus driver, security guard, yeah. train driver. A again, witness protection program. I don't know. <laughs> but we, we rarely saw him. But then looking back now, I can appreciate what they did yeah. and the sacrifices they made. Because we have to bear in mind that back in, you know, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, Nigeria, where my parents came from, was still under British rule. Yeah. And they also had a right of passage to come here. And uh, they all kind of felt that because they had served the British in Nigeria, mm -hmm. they were going to be looked after when they came here. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the truth was far from, from what they were expecting because it was just... Brutal in certain respects. And yes, they came here because the motherland uh, kind of invited them. They wanted to excel, uh, lead a better life, provide for their children. 
But they, they worked bloody hard. Yes, in a tough world. In a very tough world. No, I remember that world and it wasn't pleasant. I know. It's really weird because when I think about it, I, over the years I've thought I might, uh, I might write a show based on the stories my parents told us when we were growing up. Mm. But even now, as a grown man myself, I can't find the words to make that funny no. or, or palatable. Mm. It'll be, it'll, it'll be a, a kind of deep drama, I think. Yeah, well, it's not funny if it still goes on. That's the thing. If it's historical yes. and you can look back at it and you're aware of the absurdity of it, right. but the fact that it still goes on makes it not so funny, I think. Yes, yes, you're right. I mean, I used to do a joke um, back in the early days going, my parents arrived in this UK and they were met on with signs on doors that said, no, black Irish dogs. And so for, for many, many years, they really thought that London was being terrorised by a pack of black Irish dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, you, you, well, you have to kind of find a way to find the funny. That's my mantra in life anyway. Yeah, no, I think you're right in, in everything. If you can, it really does diffuse things, doesn't it, comedy? Yeah. I love the idea of that photograph of you and your sister, Stella. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you, because it's also at a time where um, my parents used to always say to us children, if you get an education, get a degree, get that piece of paper in your hand, Nobody can ever take it away. Yeah. And it was around that time that both myself and my twin sister, very, very different in terms of academic abilities. I mean, scientist is where she was uh, going in towards, you know, mathematics, physics, biology, chemistry, mm -hmm. whereas I, you know, look at me, <laughs> into the arts sort of thing. <laughs> and, and at 30, we kind of both had found our, our lanes, if you like, but we were still connected beyond any other way I could think. Mm. Just an innate connection of family, birthright, bloodline, and the fact that she was very, very super intelligent and I was just this show-off didn't matter. Good combination. I, I think so. I, I always said to her, you should sing or do something. And she's probably oh, one of the shyest people I know. No, no. 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 But you had that extraordinary sort of uh, twin connection, did you, as well? Almost a much deeper thing than a sort of bloodline even, isn't it? We did, to be honest. Uh, and for many, many years, we were also the same height, you know, <laughs> growing up. And I think suddenly I hit like 11 and then shot up by about a foot, which was uh, most her dismay. But she took great pleasure in telling everybody that she is six minutes older than I am. So it doesn't matter how tall I grow. I do remember, though, in primary school, we were separated uh, because the teacher said we were just looking at each other and having what appeared to be some sort of telepathic communication. Really? So we were taken into different classes. Can you imagine that? I think that's really wicked. Yeah, it's unfair. You're born with an advantage and then they take it away from you. Exactly. Lovely. OK, well, we're going to put the photograph okay. from that birthday party of you and Stella, or as I like to call her, hospital, <laughs> <laughs> into the time capsule. And that's your first item, Stephen. That's my first item, yes. Lovely. What's your second? My second item is the last tax disc of a car that I owned when I was 19 years of age. Right. And that car is a VW Volkswagen Beetle uh, bright orange. Oh, perfect. Bright orange. 
that car was my pride and joy. Mm. I mean, VW Beetles of that era now are considered collector's items. Absolutely. But for me, this got me around town. This was my first car that I bought myself. If I could put the car itself in the capsule, I would. Mm. But this gave me independence. I would go out. Uh, I was still living at home with my parents. And so I would go out for a drive if I wanted to. <laughs> uh, I could I could just, you know, get sit in the car if I wanted to and play music. Mm. I, I was the designated driver for my four amazing friends. My best friend back in the day was a guy called Justin. And me and him would just drive around London in this orange beetle, just music blaring out <laughs> and just having fun. Yeah. And it just gave me a level of of kind of independence that I'd never known before. And I could, you know, I could lie to my parents and say I was going to the shops or I was going to see an aunt or I could say anything, but it meant I was going out of the house. They trusted me because I was in my own car mm. and it was amazing. They were fantastic cars as well, weren't they? I mean, they still are. Absolutely. And, and I do, if you recall, but there was that very famous um, trilogy of films, I think, uh, Herbie. Herbie, love uh, You know, the, Herbie, the, yeah. yeah. And I had one of those cars. <laughs> and in those days, they, they weren't expensive, but it meant I was cool. Yeah. And in those days as well, everybody who had a Beetle, if you drove down the road, someone could, coming towards you, if a Beetle, you'd flash your lights to each other. <laughs> That was a little sort of code thing. And in the back window of my Beetle, I had a sticker. And the sticker was from a nightclub I used to go to with Justin. Mm. And it said, Dance Wicked. <laughs> and this club was underneath the arches in Vauxhall in southwest London. Yeah. And one of the regular DJs was a guy called Jazzy B, who ended up being the main man of Soul to Soul. Wow. And having global worldwide hits. But myself and Justin, we were there at the beginning. So we thought that we were the, we had our fingers on the pulse. <laughs> it was amazing. So that gives me a really, really fond memory of independence, but also it gives me memories of, of being judged. Mm. And I'll tell you why. Um, back then I lived in Ballam, southwest London, and uh, I was in the West End with Justin, and it's probably about a half hour drive home. Yeah. And on my way home with Justin, probably about one, two in the morning, we got stopped by the police three times. Three times? Three different police. In one journey? Yeah, in one journey. Good God. And to give you context, Justin, my best friend at the time, is a white lad. We'd known each other for a good few years. He was horrified. Yeah. Because he'd never been stopped by the police. And it's a half an hour journey. And I was like, I'm on a beetle. Yeah. This, this is hardly the, the drug dealer car of choice. <laughs> I mean, the whole process of that happening. And let's face it, who was the brilliant young athlete who that happened to recently? Where she was oh, talking? that young, lovely young girl, yes. Yeah. And, and her other half, yes, with a baby in the car. Uh, and you sort of go, well, so they looked like they were driving, what, a drug dealer's car, maybe? And because they're black, people think maybe uh. it's just absurd. And then what sort of drug dealer carries all their drugs around with them in a flash car? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. They probably thought I was being really clever. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not use a flash car. Uh, go for a bright orange beetle, Steve. That's what's going to do it. <laughs> this is the one he's got the firearms and the drugs in. Yeah. <laughs> and look, he's taking a white friend, just trying to trick us. <laughs> it was so... It was really weird because... It was only at that, because I'd been stopped by the police before, you know, in cars or otherwise, quite a few times. But it was the first time that I'd had a friend with me who'd seen it for his own eyes. Yeah. Because there was no reason to stop the car. There was no, you know, uh, rear lights are off or I was indicating incorrectly. Nothing. No. But in the half hour journey to get from the West End to Ballum, three different police cars stopped me. And they give it the producer. It was back in those days, they used to call it the producer, where they say on Monday or within seven days, you must produce your insurance, license, MOT at a police station. Mm. Three times. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. In one night. Oh, my word. Yeah. Well, this is a world that we privileged white people just don't know. But I've not got a single friend who's black who's not suffered this awful injustice. And I think that's probably why, you know, if we're talking about the current day where there's all this BLM protests and whatever, I think it's because I've never vocalised this before, for example. No. And I know lots of my uh, black family members or black friends would never say this because we assume it happens all the time suck it up. Mm. And so our white friends never hear about it. And we don't have that dialogue. No, no. Do you know what I mean? It was only, as I say, because my friend saw it for himself. Not once, not three times in one night. Yeah. You know, it's just extraordinary. Well, it's about time people knew, isn't it? I think so. I think it's about time that we listen to each other. Yeah. Listen and allow people to express how something has made them feel mm. without interruption. Mm. You know, you may want to challenge it, but listen, that's where we have to start. Yeah. I mean, uh, that sort of absurd prejudice can only be taught because all my experiences of children playing together is that they just don't notice ethnicity at all. I think you're absolutely right. Because, for example, uh, by the time I went to primary school, myself and my twin sister, um, in our household, mum, dad, older brother, older sister, and then our, a small family, race was never even mentioned. It wasn't a, a bone of contention. It wasn't something we discussed. But my first day at primary school, I went into the classroom, I ran straight back home, and I said to my mum, Mum, apparently there's a black boy in my class. I can't find him anywhere. <laughs> and mum was like, ah, mm. welcome to the rest of your life. Yeah. Because it's all those things that, you know, other people are happy to point out, but unless you mix with people from different backgrounds and cultures, you may not understand or may not see it yourself. No. No, my son at school made friends with a lad and said, uh, I'm friends with him because we have the same type of hair. Now, my son has very thick, curly hair. And when his friend came round, of course, his friend was black. But he hadn't noticed that. He noticed they had the same type of hair. 
brilliant. Yeah. And that, I kind of think that's the way it should be. But then again, you kind of think, oh, now with the advent of social media, et cetera, et cetera, you have to prepare your, your children for, for, for the real world and what they're going to actually experience. Well, that's true, but it's, it's not right. And you don't have to sort of fight against it, don't you? And I think that actually it has to be, it has to come from people like me. Yes. Rather than you. Yes. You know, you've had your fight. It has to come from my side of things where we won't tolerate it because, in fact, we clearly have tolerated it for our entire lives. And that's that's sad. We've sort of let it go. Yeah, it's very interesting you say that because um, I try not to get involved in any kind of online debates with anybody on social media because I really don't have the time. But what I have tended to do recently is put something out there may be considered incendiary and then watch it the sparks fly <laughs> uh what happened a few weeks ago a friend of mine a very good friend of mine a white guy australian wrote something on uh i think it was facebook or whatever it was about the controversy surrounding blackface mm. and he wrote something like this i'm paraphrasing he said um i remember when blackface was just funny pure and simple now People complain about anything, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and I was like, Ooh, oh, dear. how do I respond to this? Yep. So I took what he said. I didn't mention him at all. And I said to my friends and whatever on social media, I don't know how to respond to this. What would you say? Mm. And of course, brrr, a, a Rolodex of millions of responses came through. Some people very angry. Oh, how dare he, blah, 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 block him other people being quite reasonable, maybe educate him. Other people going, it's not your place to educate him. Why should you have to educate somebody? And I just think it's just such, it's such a minefield. And what we're seeing right now is incendiary language that is designed to spark uh, this side of the argument or, or the, the left side of the argument or the middle side, you know, and not be cohesive mm. and let us all have that conversation. Yeah. Uh, and this guy, as I say, is a friend of mine and I know for a fact he wouldn't have a racist bone in his body per se, but for him to put that out there and maybe not ask me mm. kind of says a lot about background and what we've all been exposed to in our own worlds. But a lot of people that I encounter either need to be educated, mm. uh, need to know... Like, like for example, at the moment, I don't mind B-A-M-E, but maybe in a couple of months, you know, BAME saying that yeah, phrase. Yeah. But in a couple of months, I might go, actually, yeah, it is quite offensive. Yeah, I can see why it would be. But having said that, a lot of universities and and institutions uh, have embraced the term mm -hmm. thinking they were doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, you ask my, my dad, my dad is now 81. You, you, I'd ask him how he has been referred to in this country. And he might go... Um, uh, 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 coloured, darky, uh, nigger, uh, blacky, um, and now by his name. <laughs> oh, there's a strange thing. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, but you see, and then you ask a white man of my dad's age who's grown up in the home counties or wherever, mm. and he's confused. How do I refer to, you know, if, particularly if you don't have a social group that includes people of different backgrounds? No. Which is, you know, more than the norm. It's it's very regular. Yeah, yeah. 
but also maybe the source of the problem that people are always afraid of groups of people they don't know yes but then that's how in if you look back through history that's how it's been sold to us mm -hmm. you know people who were them different others they are always the enemy we are number one. Look after your own kind. Mm. That's how we become uh, a survivor of the fittest. We become the strongest. We get to conquer. And that is why comedy over the ages, in England anyway, has really evolved, you know, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, when you could laugh at people who were different from you. Mm. Whereas now you kind of go, is that it? Yeah. Are we laughing at a difference? Mm -hmm. Surely there's more nuance than that. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. People of my generation, my white friends, my black friends, my uh, Indian, uh, Chinese friends, we all kind of sound like me. Yeah. However, we talk to our kids, my friends' kids, my nephews and nieces, they've all got a London speak. <laughs> and if you close your eyes, you wouldn't know what colour they were. Yeah. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? And so we can't now laugh at the way they speak because that's how they all speak. Yes. I know a number of children. I've heard people in Tunbridge Wells do the classic <laughs> thing of saying arcs. Oh, wow. Oh, my dad would be spewing if you heard that. <laughs> what are they saying? Arcs? <laughs> Good heavens. Fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, it's really weird as well, because I'll... I'll because I'm very aware that in my position, the kind of job that I do, I do get to meet different people from all walks of life, get to travel all over the world. But I also do know that there are friends of mine, there are relatives of mine who don't have white friends. Mm -hmm. And I know white people who don't have black friends. Yeah. I know when I'm at an event of, you know, at the Royal Television Society or, or the BAFTAs, when I'm the only black person in the room. Yeah. I, I see all that. And the problem is, that I've always found, is that in those situations, I can't complain because I've got a seat at that table. Yeah. And the moment I start complaining, I'm deemed as a troublemaker and put on the... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So for years, I've kind of kept my mouth shut myself. Mm. However, with the advent, the positive side of social media is that newer performers from varying backgrounds can have their stuff on a platform. And that platform can have a wide reach, which means those people and those voices cannot be ignored. No. No, all you're asking for is a level playing field. That's all people want in life. That's all we're asking for. Yes, absolutely. Ah, well, what we'll do is we'll get into your lovely orange VW Beetle. <laughs> yes! Me and you, and we're going to tour London yeah. and see how many times we get stopped now. <laughs> I'm not just going to put the license plate in there. I'm going to find that car. I'm going to have it remade for you. I'm going to put it in the time capsule. Perfect. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I still remember the, the license plate. All right, good. TKJ525N. It's in there. That's item number two. Fantastic. So, what's next? OK, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back in a moment. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else Stephen K. Amos would like to put in his time capsule. Well, um, I thought about what you said, and you said any of the items could be anything from uh, something that you can hold, something small, or a thought, a feeling, a smell. Mm. So one of my items is going to be a smell, Ah. and it's the smell of school dinners. (laughs) And I tell you why, because I think school dinners in my era, if you ask anybody of my age, there is a distinct smell that we all recognise, be it overboiled cabbage, (laughs) uh, mixed with carrots, but there's that smell. It smells quite farty and also quite lingering. (laughs) So that is a smell that I always associate with school dinners. Mm. And not because it was a negative thing, it was because in those days, for any listeners who may be uh, under the age of... used to have free milk provided for you, Mm. every child, and you always used to have free dinners. And nobody brought packed lunches. There was none of this, um, oh, are you vegetarian? Are you meat or your fish? There was, there was none of this um, <laughs> dietary requirements. It was all the same stuff, the same stodge that could be put in a vat and boiled <laughs> to within an inch of its life. Yes. And that smell will never, ever leave me. Because I actually did like school dinners. It was, you know, particularly in your last few years of primary school, it was that time to see your mates outside of your classrooms and outside of the playground, we could sit anywhere yeah. and have a chat with somebody over the same dinner. And the school dinner ladies, and it's not being sexist, but invariably back then, there are a lot more women working in that field, mm-hmm. were just like your second mum. You know, all it took was a kind of droopy eye <laughs> to give an extra dollop of lumpy mashed potato. Mm. That's all it took. A, a kind of little tear coming out the corner of your eye would give you extra skin-filled custard. Oh, yes. That was, and pink custard. <laughs> Whatever happened to pink custard? <laughs> that was a thing. It, oh, and we, we don't question it now. 
But it, where is it? Where's it gone? It's a goner. And I've obviously heard lots of people now since say, oh, school dinners were terrible. But I really... And I, if I have that smell anywhere, and I get goosebumps. Mm. And I also was a kid that loved my late years in primary school. I loved it. Because this was a year that was the precursor to going into secondary school, where that first year in secondary school, you were taught how to put wallpaper over your school books. <laughs> I mean, what a thing. <laughs> Who knew that was a thing? <laughs> I could just... I was just thank God my parents didn't just use asbestos. <laughs> imagine how heavy and dangerous those books would be then. But my English book was like a, a velvet-bound volume. <laughs> and flock. <laughs> flock wallpaper. <laughs> oh, oh, my... Brilliant. Oh, I, I loved it. I loved um, my English teacher. He was... In fact, when I think about it, my English teacher was probably the first person in my world mm. who told me that my imagination in terms of the stories that I was writing for homework were funny. Wow. It's probably the reason why I do this job. Oh, that's fabulous, isn't it? Isn't that weird? How one person can make you realise something about yourself. I had no idea. I was, you know, typically the kind of silly, funny kid in school, whatever. And my best friend at the, in school back then was David. He... Looking back, he came from a, a, a quite a poor income household. Mm. So every school dinners, he would clear off all our plates. Uh. And we nicknamed him the dustbin. <laughs> and back then we were, we'd laugh. But now looking back, that's really sad. Yeah. But I, I can now use that as a kind of story to kind of go at the things that you learn and you see in your formative years how they will, in fact, impact you later on in life. Yes. You know, he's now, he's now a chef. Oh, great. He's my oldest friend. He's now a chef. It's <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> that smell of the cooking in a school. Yes. It started to permeate the school at about 10 o'clock in the morning, didn't it? Oh. So from about 10 o'clock, you started to salivate. <laughs> I'm salivating right now <laughs> because uh, in my school back in the day, our... Assembly hall was also the dining hall and the gym. Yeah. Uh, It it covered all bases. And you're right. From assembly, we're going to our classrooms and bang on 10.30. Does that smell? Mm. Every kid's nostrils will be flaring. (laughs) Then you'd hear a noise that sounded as though the school was in a kind of volcano zone because it was the rumbling of all our stomachs at once. (laughs) And you could could even see the teacher shaking with hunger themselves. And then the bell would go, oh, we'll be out that door, in the queue. I've seen that. And that's the first I'd ever seen, like um, one of those massive uh, trays with a steak and kidney pie all in one that they divide in a thousand pieces. <laughs> I thought some of my dinner ladies were Jesus, the way they divided up food. <laughs> <laughs> did you have those large um, sort of aluminium jugs for water? Yes, we did. Yeah. We didn't have to bring anything to school apart from our coats with our names sewn in the back. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That and a bag. And in our bag 
contained nothing. No, and now you see all those kids walking down the street, ruining their posture, carrying <laughs> just suitcases of stuff to school. Yeah, what are you doing, child? <laughs> what is in that? Well, the school's not supplying anything. That's the problem. Well, exactly. Mm. Good heavens. No. Different world. Yes. The one thing I do remember about school lunches, now this may be particular to my school, was that one of the things that you did automatically when you took your cutlery from the tray was you licked it. Oh! Did you do that? Did you <laughs> lick your cutlery? It was so somebody else wouldn't nick it. If you got a nice clean set of cutlery or, you know, they looked a bit shiny, you'd go for the shiny one and then you'd lick it. And then that meant nobody else would touch it. <laughs> I obviously went to a very rough school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to contest you on that, but n- no, what we did, if anything, we used to spit on our food <laughs> yeah. to make sure nobody, nobody mixed it. <laughs> <laughs> if it was something you liked, oh, you can have the Brussels sprouts, but leave that chicken pie alone. Yes, indeed, absolutely. You can have the semolina and jam. Oh, semolina. Tapioca. 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 I mean, are we at war? <laughs> I was not... I could not believe... I didn't know what it was. It frog's eyes, we used to say. Look at this. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I'm afraid it's been a burden for me the rest of my life, school dinners, because basically that's what I want to eat. Ah, oh, see, I'm totally with you because I don't know uh, about you, but whenever... Like, probably about 10 years ago, in the West End of London... If you were doing a bit of work, there maybe a voiceover or running to do this or that, there used to be a little sort of cafe-type restaurant called the uh, Soho Kitchen or the Chelsea Kitchen. And it was literally trestle tables, no frills, serving school dinners. <laughs> Perfect. And the, the, the menus were, were handwritten yeah. and photocopied. And it'd be steak and kidney pie, custard and and uh, orange sponge cake, or, or <laughs> spotted dick. Treacle pudding. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, and reasonably priced. Yeah. You know, because no health values, <laughs> no vitamins, just good old-fashioned stodge. I've been in there, I always had a glass of milk. <laughs> <laughs> How sad am I? Um, no, no, milk is good. Milk is good. Well, there we are. So that takes you right back to school. So, yes, I'm definitely going to put... You'll be in an eternal queue with that smell lingering in front of oh. you and everything steaming, oh. just waiting with your plate. That goes into the time capsule. Wonderful. Right, we've got two left. You've got two left. The next item I've chosen is a tape cassette of the cast recording of the first ever musical I ever went to. Yeah. This was in 1979. My family and I, bearing in mind, my parents never took us anywhere. Ever. We didn't go anywhere. Then this year, 1979, I I was a young boy. Yeah. My parents took us all to the West End of London to see a musical. The musical was called Ippy Tombi. Oh. Now... I don't know if any of your listeners will remember that. This was the first ever South African-based musical to hit the West End, Theatreland, Broadway, Mm. and it was a phenomenon. Mm. And that was the only time my parents and, and all of us kids went out for an outing anywhere. We didn't go on holidays. We didn't go uh, to restaurants. 
We weren't allowed out to play with kids on our street. Uh, my parents didn't go to pubs or bars with their friends. We were very much on our own. Mm-hmm. The only people we ever went to see were family members. And that is why this strikes out to me as so kind of left field. And having looked back on it, I can only imagine my parents being from West Africa, Nigerian, the one time they got a bit of cultural relevance yeah. of people who looked like them, sounded like them, were being celebrated like they should have been, was when this show, Ipitombi, came to the West End of London. Yes. Do you know, that continues, isn't it? That actually, there are lots of shows in the West End that really aren't for a black audience. And yet, there have been musicals through the age which have completely drawn a black audience. Mm. So Ipitombi is definitely one of them. Five guys named Mo. Oh, I went to see that. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It was brilliant. Oh, it was so, so good. And you know, it's really weird because back in the day, and I, I, I really do honestly think, even though my parents did not encourage me to go into comedy or theatre or, or performance, those little things that they did really impacted on who I am and who I became. Yeah. Because I've never seen them be enthusiastic about the theatre or live shows. No. So for them to take us to such an impactful show, yeah. I remember the songs. I remember the storyline of this a theatrical piece. Mm. I remember for the first time in my life being in this, what felt like a huge theatre, seeing the first time as a kid living in London, seeing so many black faces <laughs> in one place. <laughs> it was so weird. And the only couple of times that's happened to me since is when I saw Five Guys Named Mo, when I did my own recordings at the BBC. Mm. And how weird is that? But I'd go to the BBC and the first point of call are the security guards or reception. And of ten of those people, eight of them would be black. Mm. And the, you go past those doors, people in management, commissioning, you wouldn't see one black face. No. You go and do a comedy show, you look at the audience, they're all white. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because, you know, I think that when I was growing up watching comedy, I didn't think the comedians were talking to me because back then it was, you know, homophobic jokes, sexist jokes and racist jokes. Mm. So I didn't think I was, it was a place where I would be included because it's all very well laughing at myself but if everybody else is laughing at me, mm. who the hell am I laughing at? <laughs> yeah, quite. You know. So when you did your own show, you suddenly found you got a black audience, did you? Well, yes. And when you have the, the when you have staff at the BBC, when I say staff, I'm talking the security guards, reception, people in the canteens, mm-hmm. telling me whenever I have a show recorded at that venue, they see more black people than they've ever seen before. Yeah. In one respect, you kind of go, oh, great. And the other respect, you kind of go, really? I know. Yeah. But it's that thing. If you don't feel that you're included, why would you attend? You know? Whenever I walk down the street, the people in the main who stop me and ask for a picture or something, in the main, are black people. Really? They're always quite, oh, man, Stephen Amos, you're really funny. You're that comedy guy. And they always say this, nine times out of ten, thank you very much for representing. Uh, and it never occurred to me before, when I started this, that 
because there are so few of us, we'll be seen as representatives of our entire community. Yes. When I see white people, um, as much as I love you people, <laughs> a lot of them will just go speak under their breath. Oh, there's that comedian, yeah. Better yeah. leave him alone. And they walk, but I can hear them. How weird. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, that's not a critique. It's just that I've just found it quite fascinating, an observation, to have noticed that. But I can understand also why you would then have to watch yourself, as it were, avoid getting involved in those conversations on Twitter and Facebook that could lead anywhere, you know. Exactly. The, the one thing I'm really confident about is that nobody can look back over anything I've written on social media and it be negative or critical or offensive to anybody. That's quite a bold statement. It is quite a bold like. statement. There are going to be people checking now. They're going right back <laughs> through the whole history. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a moment. What's this? I don't like sausages. <laughs> yeah, I think that's slightly critical. <laughs> I love a sausage. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that. <laughs> right. So I wonder if that cast of Ipitombi came from South Africa originally. I'm so pleased you asked that because... I did some research ah. and I found out that when the show opened in London, there were quite a few protests because apparently the show wasn't representative of what South Africa was like at that moment under apartheid rule, etc. Yeah. And I found out, and I'm not quite sure, to be honest, how I feel about this, that the show was written by a very famous, well-known white South African composer. Really? Yeah. Ah. And her daughter. Mm. Yeah, because I saw this show, and the show is presented by an all-black cast yeah. in traditional dress, yes. telling the story about a man who leaves his family in the village, goes to the city to try and find work to support the family, then gets embroiled in a choice whether to go for the civil war or go back to the village and fight for his kids. Mm. And as a young black kid, I thought that's amazing. Uh, now, I wonder if that story would have been told if the composer was not a white South African woman. Whether it would have been a story of somebody trying to leave the village, being stopped by the police and then being told to go back home. End of story. End of story. Or then again... Has that woman done a great thing by bringing this wonderful story to light? Well, you can't tell, can you, really? I mean, historically, yeah. at the time, it had an enormous impact. Yeah. And the very fact that you and your family all got together and went there, it makes it worth it in itself, I think. Do you know the, the musical? I did go and see it, Tommy, yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was fantastic. And, of course, completely outside of my culture. Right. I mean, it was as weird as watching... River dance. <laughs> but, well, yes. Well, same for us. Because we were like, ooh, is that what they, is that what they do in South Africa? Oh, dear, oh, dear. They can't dance. <laughs> so we we will put Ipitombi in there with all its energy and life. and Thank uh, you. It's fantastic. We should put that into the time capsule. So we've got one item to go. Now, really, Stephen, this is supposed to be something that you'd like to get rid of from your life. Oh, right. Um... There's so many things that, looking back, one would like to kind of reject and kind of dismiss. But I thought to myself, you know what? I wouldn't be who I am today mm. without all the highs and the lows. True. Because with every positive, realistically, there's been quite a few negatives. <laughs> so I'm just going to enjoy because you can't make 
amends for what happened yesterday, but you can look forward till tomorrow because nobody knows what tomorrow may bring. No. We started this conversation about um, one of the things I'd put in the capsule and one of the things I said I'd put in the capsule was a photograph of myself and my twin sister. Yes. What I failed to mention at that time was that my twin sister passed away two years ago. Oh, Lord. Which was the worst thing that ever happened in my life. Uh, I've never experienced um, grief on that level before. I've never experienced anxiety on that level. But it made me also challenge who I was, my mm-hmm. perception of, of, of mortality. And you know what? I don't, I don't fear mortality because who knows what our journey is going to mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. And as long as you can look yourself in the eye and say, you know what? I've done the best I can. I've had a good innings. Good on you. Yeah. So whatever happens tomorrow will happen. And, and at the end of the day, we all know there are certain things that are guaranteed. We all pay taxes and we will die. Yes. <laughs> Unless, of course, your name True. is Prince Philip. You just go on <laughs> forever, don't you? <laughs> no, bring him out again. <laughs> so for me, I thought... <laughs> I'm going to look back at the, maybe the, a little regret that I had. And the regret that I had was, I think, quite minor. I needed to, to earn money as a kid, 14, 15 years of age, didn't get pocket money, didn't have a Saturday job. Uh, I liked nice things. I wanted to pay for driving lessons. So I thought, right, I'm going to live the rest of my life as a scammer. So one of the first scams I ever did, yes. my mother used to be an Avon lady, and I used to scrape off the A from Avon to create Von Cream, (laughs) which I then sold to all the boys in my school as a penis enlargement ointment. (laughs) 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 That is the first time I've ever admitted that openly and honestly. <laughs> and there are um, people from your class all over the place listening to this going, what? What? Is this not large? I don't know. Is this the size it was going to be? Damn him. <laughs> Von Cream. Can you believe it? Terrible. And then I had a friend of mine who thought he could go one further and he used to get um, a tin and then remove the uh, label and put another label collecting for the Red Cross. Um. <laughs> oh, but no. We were young people yeah. who didn't know any better and didn't have any money. Our parents are very strict. So that is my only <laughs> defence. Uh, it's nothing I'm proud of. Uh, I wish I could take it back. Yeah. But it, 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 did, it did keep me in good stead later on in life when I did get a Saturday job at my local Sainsbury's. And in those days, you got your wages every two weeks, a little brown paper envelope. And my mother used to say, give me the envelope. I used to give her the envelope. She took what she wanted and gave me the rest. So I thought to myself, oh, if only I could find a way to scam her too. So I used to bring the envelope back and it had been opened already and I had taken what I want and given her the rest. 
She knew nothing of this. Really? So she only took a small percentage of what you didn't need? <laughs> yes! <laughs> You're a master criminal. I'm sorry, but this is outrageous. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for that, but... <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that's my life. What a lovely life. Will you take all those things in, will I you? will put them in there. They're in the time capsule. They're absolutely fantastic, and it's uh, it's been... A joy to talk to you, I have to say. So thank you very much. And uh, all I have to say is I've just had a text message from my wife saying, um, have you got any of that Von cream? (laughs) (laughs) You have been listening to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest has been Stephen K. Amos. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you usually get your podcasts from. We'd be grateful if you would rate the show and leave a review if you have the time. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. I'll leave you with a fact about Stephen that we didn't discuss. In 2019, Stephen starred in the BBC's Pilgrimage Show, walking Via Francigena, an ancient pilgrimage route to Rome. When he got there, he met Pope Francis, and he told him, as a gay man, I don't feel accepted. The Pope responded, giving more importance to the adjective rather than the noun, this is not good. We are all human beings and have dignity. There are people that prefer to select or discard people because of the adjective. These people don't have a human heart. Keep well and look after each other. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.